Welcome to episode 14 of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. This is It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast, the podcast dedicated to professional wrestling history from 1870 to 1920. My name is Ken Zimmerman Jr., and today I will be covering the topic of Cora Livingston, who was actually the first recognized women's wrestling champion. But before that, you'll notice today I'm by myself again. This is going to be a solo episode. And the reason for that is because I've recent I've been self-employed for the last two and a half years, and I recently decided to go back to work. And after searching for a job for a little while, I returned to the university in November. This has created a bit of a scheduling problem to get both my son and me together twice a month. So we have decided to go with one podcast where he and I will do the podcast together. And the next one I may have a special guest on. You'll have to tune in to see. And then I'll do one solo episode. We thought about just going down to once a month because we can we can get together for one episode a month. But I really felt like I needed to stick with the original schedule I promised, which was two episodes a month. And because of illness and some other things, I mean, COVID's still a big thing here in the United States, and flu is going around pretty bad this year. So because of sickness and some other things, I've already had to do some solo episodes, even though we've been hosting and co-hosting the podcast for the last several months. So I thought this was the best solution to stay on track and to produce two episodes a month. So this episode, it'll just be me. It'll probably be a little shorter because of that. And then the next episode will be Caleb and I together. And then the last episode in December, which will come out December 26th, the day after Christmas. Right now I'm just planning on reading a chapter from Shooting or Working, the history of the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship, the new book I just released on Amazon. I may just read a chapter from that for the December episode with an update, of course. Uh, we will actually have a review, but I won't give any spoilers. I just actually finished watching this year's Survivor Series a few hours ago, and I'll share my thoughts on that. Well, actually, more like about 20 minutes ago, and I'll share my thoughts on that as well. I'm actually a little ashamed to say that I didn't know who Cora Livingston was until a few months ago. A few months ago, I was looking to try to find out research exactly when the local promotion system started in the United States because I knew it wasn't from the very beginning and I pinpointed so when I say local promotion I'm talking about what most people would think in the time period I study Jack Curley in New York which was in the teens Paul Bowser in Massachusetts which was late teens early 20s 
uh, Tom Pax, who actually got the promotion from his uncle, Nick Contos, who started the promotion in St. Louis in 1922. But throughout the decades in the U.S. until Vince McMahon's national expansion, there was usually a local promoter for a town or for a territory. For St. Louis, it was a one-town territory, and Sam Muchnick was the promoter. And I wanted to see when that developed, because that changed the landscape in professional wrestling quite a bit. More power went into the hands of the promoters. The promoters controlled the championships, and all matches, for the most part, were worked after this system came into being. And while I was researching that, I discovered that there was a women's a recognized women's wrestling champion before Mildred Burke. As a matter of fact, she won her first recognized title a year before Mildred Burke was born. And that lady's name was Cora Livingston. Cora Livingston married Paul Bowser in 1913. Uh, they were both professional wrestlers, and Paul Bowser actually got his start in promotion by promoting his wife's career. He was a wrestler himself, but he also managed and promoted her as they went around the country and she defended her championship. When he takes over Boston in 1919, 1920, around that time, she retires a year or two after that because her promotional duties are getting to be too much. She actually works with Paul Bowser in the office and is one of the first women involved in professional wrestling promotion, although she works quietly in the background and Bowser is the one that's out front and is known as the local promoter. But he admits that his wife was a big help to him in that. And they also had uh, teams of hornet horses that raced in harness racing. So she also managed their stable of horses that raced uh, in harness races. They were both fans of harness racing. So I just discovered her a few months ago, and I've been digging into her career ever since. And I think she probably got her start in wrestling around 1905, 1906. But she comes into national prominence in 1908 because she starts doing tours of the major northeastern cities. It was very difficult for a, a female wrestler to break into professional wrestling in those days. In most cities and towns, either the promoters or the local authorities or both banned women from even watching wrestling matches. So they weren't allowed to buy tickets. They weren't allowed to come into the arenas. When Sam Rockman promoted wrestling in New York City, in 1915 for the New York International Wrestling Tournament, he actually allowed female spectators because his tournaments in Europe had drawn a lot of female fans. And this was a big deal. So you can imagine if the local authorities or the promoters are not even letting uh, women spectators into the matches, they're not going to be booking uh, women's wrestlers either. So she had to find a town that would allow her to wrestle. And one of the things that she did, which you'll discover was a promotional tactic, she would put up $25, which in 1908 was a large sum of money, uh, 
to attract challengers to come into the ring and challenge her. Now, she really wasn't because she had a troop of about three girls. They were all trained wrestlers and they could work a match. Cora Livingston was trained for the ring by Dan McLeod, the former American heavyweight wrestling champion. I have not found any matches yet where she was in a legitimate contest. That's not to say there aren't because I'm actually pretty early in my research as far as her career is concerned. But if Dan McLeod trained her, then she knew how to wrestle legitimately, even though she was working her matches. They also said that Gotch had some hand in training her, which I don't believe. I've never heard of Gotch training anybody outside of Farmer Burns camps. And she wasn't part of Farmer Burns camps that uh, I can find. Like I said, early days. Maybe there is a link. But she uh, definitely was trained by Dan McLeod. And then she would get further training uh, from Paul Bowser as well. So they would go into, and the first time it happens is in Washington, D.C. in January and February of 1908. She puts up the $25 fee. They have uh, the wrestler that came in, uh, I think her name was Faye Gilbert. They changed the names at every city, but it was the same three uh, wrestlers. And she beats her in like five minutes. Then she's supposed to wrestle another wrestler named Bertha Sparks. But when they're getting ready to announce this match, a male manager stands up in the balcony and starts screaming that he has the most talented women's wrestler, not Cora Livingston, and that uh, the promoter, who was a gentleman by the name of Rome, who was a former wrestler himself, Wilhelm Wilhelm Rome, who was a former wrestler himself, is the promoter and this manager is screaming and saying Rome won't let him wrestle Livingston because he knows his wrestler can beat Cora Livingston. Rome tells him they've already promised Bertha Sparks a chance at the $25, but if he comes back tomorrow, they will allow his wrestler in the ring. The manager continues screaming and causing such a ruckus that they get scared that he's going to cause the fans to riot because the fans are starting to get irritated. So Rome agrees to let this wrestler wrestle Cora Livingston. And they get into the ring, and one, it's a rough match. And two, at about the 14-minute mark, Cora Livingston gets Evan the Strangler Lewis's stranglehold on the girl if you remember from previous episodes that is a guillotine choke not a uh in judo it's a hadakajimi and bjj it's the mataleon the lion killer and pro wrestling they used to call it the sleeper hold it is not that kind of choke it is a guillotine choke a front face lock choke the manager not wrong but the manager for the unknown jumps in the ring and pries Cora Livingston off his wrestler and says, no, the match is over. She already lasted the 15 minutes. Rome is sitting next to the timekeeper and says, no, it's been 14 minutes and 40 seconds. And the referee who had been having trouble with this manager throughout the match disqualifies the unknown. 
and the fans start booing and there's a lot of controversy and so Rome and this manager agree that Livingston and the Unknown will wrestle a finish match in a week. And when I heard all of this, I was automatically suspicious. Because it sounds like an angle to work a future match to draw a much bigger crowd. Which it was, which it did. It was very successful. They drew capacity crowds for the remainder of the next week and a half. The following day, after this controversial DQ of the unknown... Core Livingston wrestles Bertha Sparks, and Bertha Sparks makes it through. The 15 minutes with Core Livingston, and she wins the $25. Core Livingston is incensed and says, "You only wrestle defensively. If we had wrestled straight up, I would have beat you. I want to wrestle you again, and I want this to be a finish match." which Bertha Sparks agrees to. So now we've got two matches coming up that uh, have drawn the fans' interest. Again, both of them sell out. So the tactics were successful. And during this time, Corey Livingston is claiming the American Championship because of an opponent she beat that was a recognized American women's wrestling champion. Her name is not coming to me off the top of my head right now, but if you go to the show notes for uh, this episode at KenzermanJr.com, it'll be slash episode 14, I will have the wrestler's name that she uh, defeated. So she's supposedly the American Women's Wrestling Champion, but... She's had one very successful dominant performance, one controversial, questionable performance, and then another controversial performance. But it's leading to bigger gates because people want to come see, oh, will she actually defeat these other uh, lady wrestlers, or is she just overhyped? So the next match is a finish match. With Bertha Sparks. She wrestles Bertha Sparks before she wrestles the rematch with the Unknown. And she beats Bertha Sparks, but it takes her 22 minutes. So if they were still going by the 15-minute rule, Bertha Sparks would have won. But this was a finish match, and Cora Livingston beats her in 22 minutes. And Cora Livingston employed a really rough wrestling style to make her a villain. Again, this helps draw bigger crowds. People want to come see the villain get beat. So now she's defeated Bertha Sparks, going into her match with the Unknown. The match with the Unknown is a very rough match. And eventually, Cora Livingston... Again, gets Evan Strangler Lewis's stranglehold on the unknown. And there's a different referee, and he warns her that the stranglehold is barred, and she has to release it. And he warns her several times, and she ignores him. So, he disqualifies her. 
back in that those days, the unknown should have been the new American women's wrestling champion. Because titles could change hands on countouts, disqualifications, or referee stop. But if a referee stopped a match because somebody was too hurt to continue, the other person would win unless that in, if, unless the injured person could not continue because of a foul. However, because these title claims are murky at best, there's no title switch here. And again, the result is very controversial. Because Livingston claims she didn't know that the stranglehold was barred and that she didn't want to release a winning hold if uh, it hadn't been barred, which she wasn't under the impression that it had been. <coughs> so they leave town after these matches, which drew big houses, lots of money, uh, Roman Cora Livingston would have been Cora Livingston would have been very happy about the outcome of this particular tour. Unfortunately, Rome was not a very creative guy, I guess, because he thought, "I've got a winning formula here. I'm going to keep doing this." So he took the same three wrestlers besides Cora Livingston. And then they went to other cities in the Northeast, including Boston. Boston was close enough that a reporter from the Washington Herald went to Boston to see Cora Livingston wrestle again and saw the same three wrestlers she had wrestled in Washington, D.C., who are now all wrestling under different names. The Unknown was a wrestler named Walters. Uh, Bertha Sparks was... Miss Morton, and then the other wrestler that she normally beat had a different name. But the series of matches had the exact same outcomes with the exact same referees and the exact same wrestlers, which the Washington Herald reporter could not wait to report in the April edition of their newspaper, thereby exposing the business. And you don't see Cora Livingston wrestling very actively for a few more years. She's still out there. She's still wrestling. And it's always a challenge finding some of the matches. I think the uh, WrestlingData.com, uh, which is a fantastic website to uh, look at and to kind of point you in the right way for uh, research, and they've got a lot of great information on there. But I think the first matches they have for her in 1917, and she had been wrestling for 10 or 12 years before that, but it's really hard to find that stuff sometimes. And it's actually only gotten a little bit easier probably over the last six or seven years. I was When I first started writing and researching in between 2005 and 2014, I'd say, I was still using microfilm in the university library because it was so hard to find the sources online now newspapers.com has expanded so much they've got just about everything and you can find a lot of things but i'm gonna say in the last three years it's just been in the last three or four years because newspapers.com is constantly adding to their collection it's only been within that time frame that i have been able to find some uh 
of the matches I've been looking for for a long time. So I did not have a newspaper article that reported on the Stanislaus Sabisco double cross of Wayne Munn in 1925. I did, but they were like two or three. It was not a detailed accounting of that match. So before that, I was going on a lot of what I had read in other sources and the you know a couple of sentences I could find in some newspapers. Well, over the last couple of years, so when I was writing Double Cross and the Gold Dust Trio, I actually found two or three in-depth newspaper articles that covered that match from Philadelphia where it occurred. Those things were invaluable, helping clear up some false things that had always been believed about the matches because they had been reprinted because nobody could find any real original sources to go off of. And then I found a couple new things that I didn't know before I found those two or three articles. So they, they were invaluable. And more and more of that is becoming available. So more and more uh, people that are researching history, historians, uh, writers, they're continually adding to that knowledge because of the things that they're able to find now. So a lot of things that we've not had access to before... We'll probably see even more of that over the next 10 to 20 years. This series of matches did hurt <coughs> Livingston. She doesn't wrestle as frequently for a little while, but then she starts getting really active in the early uh, 19 teens. 1914, according to some of the sources I've read, I need to research this more. So I'm just repeating some things I've read, but until I verify them myself, I'm not going to state their fact. She was supposed to have won a tournament in 1914 for the recognized Women's World Championship. My guess is that tournament was worked, but as I find more information about uh, Cora Livingston, I will be putting that up on the website. So uh, maybe on the podcast... Definitely be in some articles, and so just uh, check out com if you want to know more about Cora Livingston or Paul Bowser, or really uh, any pro wrestling between 1870 and 1920. I have ranged up as late as the 1930s uh, recently, and that may continue because there is some early St. Louis stuff that I've always wanted to look up. And if I find it, I might actually post it because I think Fred Blassie got his start in St. Louis. So if I can find those accounts and they're interesting, I will probably write uh, some articles about that. But primarily, the website will always be dedicated to wrestling between 1870 and 1920. We only range up a little bit when it makes sense. If there's a St. Louis connection... If it's a legitimate contest, or if it's like crossovers, <coughs> uh, Elio Gracie in a uh, match with Vladik Zabisco from Brazil. We wrote about that. Newsflash, it was deadly dull, but we, we wrote about that as well. So before I end this episode this week, the only thing I did want to do, I wanted to share a few thoughts about Survivor Series. So this is the second pay-per-view or 
premium live event uh, for us here in the States that has happened under the Triple H or Paul Levesque uh, creative regime. And I will say that the company direction has improved tremendously under Stephanie McMahon and Paul Levesque's leadership. I hope they remain in charge because it is much better. The shows, you can't just watch seven hours of WWE programming in about 30 minutes, which is what I used to do. I haven't, I hadn't watched Raw or SmackDown on any kind of consistent basis. Actually, hardly at all. I didn't watch it at all from 2010 to 2016. And from 2016 to about 2019, I only watched NXT. And I found Raw and SmackDown for most of the past three or four years unwatchable. Um, I don't know if Vince just lost his way or he didn't have any competition and you're going to watch what I think is uh, great and he has a weird sense of humor. I, I don't know exactly what happened, but the shows were horrible and the pay-per-views were a little better because you didn't have all the stupid skits on the pay-per-views or the premium live events. I need to start calling them now because I know that it's not a big pay-per-view business like it used to be. But the premium live events were a little better because they didn't have as many of the stupid skits. But they could have some dumb stuff in the middle of matches sometimes. But in general, I could usually find a couple of matches on the pay-per-views or the premium live events that were worth watching. The first couple shows that uh, Paul Levesque took over, I watched the shows in their entirety and they really kept my interest. The last two, because I really wasn't interested in some of the matches, I skipped over a couple matches, which was not uncommon at all before uh, they took over. But there were, I was interested in big time backs coming back. Um, I don't like War Games matches. I didn't like them in WCW. The only reason I uh, watched the and I'm not going to give away any spoilers here. So if you haven't seen the pay-per-view, don't worry about it. you got plenty of time to go see it because I'm not going to tell you who won. I'll just tell you my overall thoughts on the show. I, I thought the show overall was still a positive. Uh, I don't like the War Games matches. First of all, I don't like all... There, there's way too much chairs, tables, and all of that. But I never liked the War Games concept when it was in WCW because for it to work... For the most part, and I saw the for the first time the uh, baby faces having the advantage. It, it actually worked to forward this storyline, but I can't see it working in too many other uh, scenarios. the The heels always had to have the advantage, and I just thought that was not that bright. And then it would always get way too gimmicked up. So the matches I really wanted to see, I had no interest in Ronda and Shotzi because Ronda needs somebody to lead her through a match, and I don't think Shotzi is the one that can do that. I was not interested in... There was one other match. So th let me just say, I wanted to see Becky Lynch. I definitely wanted to see AJ Styles versus Finn Balor. That definitely delivered. I was uh, worried they were going to gimmick it up too much or too much outside interference, but actually 
It was a very good match. It made a lot of sense. If you watch one match from the pay-per-view, watch that one. I was interested in Bobby Lashley, Austin Theory, and Seth Rollins, but I have to say I was pretty disappointed. They did some interesting things. I don't have a problem with the ending, but the way the ending was just very messed up and didn't make any sense to me. And so if you watch it, you'll see what I'm saying. Not really as upset with the outcome, although I think there were a lot of people in the arena that were upset with the outcome. But it was more just the way that it unfolded there at the end. It didn't make any sense. Um, and I'll leave it at that. Watch it and you'll know what I'm talking about. And then the War Games match. The only reason I watched that at all is because I'm so intrigued by the Sami Zayn main event, Jey Uso, Roman Reigns dynamic. Because when Jimmy was hurt, I loved the Roman Reigns main event Jey Uso uh, storyline. And I really thought Jey Uso stepped up and carried that role fantastic during that time. I was all, I was, I, not almost, I was disappointed when Jimmy came back to a degree. Because I'm like, oh, now Jey's going to get buried in a tag team again. But... They've done this well. Everything that they've done, they've done very well. So I don't know if Paul Heyman has got a tight fist on the creative ear. I know Roman has a lot to say about it, too. Um, and all of these guys are brilliant. Jimmy and Solo do exactly what they should. You know, they're easy to overlook in this, but they do exactly what they should. And the storyline between Jay, Roman, and Sammy is gold incredibly interesting storyline and i thought that this match a little too gimmicked up for me and there was one spot that was obvious ridiculous amounts of cooperation and i know the fans got a kick out of it but i thought it was absolutely ridiculous uh, you can see if you can guess that if you uh send me an email or ask me on twitter if, if you guess it i'll tell you yes that was the part i was talking about but other than that one spot in the match, I really thought that that match forwarded the storyline. It did what it should do. So even if it was gimmicked up, I didn't watch it because I was expecting a five-star match. This match I watched because I wanted to see the storyline forwarded. I watched AJ Styles and Finn Balor because I thought it would be a very good to great wrestling match. And they delivered a very good to great wrestling match. So that's my thoughts on Survivor Series 2022. Um, I will continue to at least watch parts of the WWE pay-per-views. I've been very happy with the direction of the company, and I'm happy with what I've seen creatively. So it's it's just a shame that Aleister Black and Buddy Murphy signed such long-term, or he's Buddy Matthews now, I think, and Malachi Black in AEW. It's a shame they signed such long-term deals because I think their careers would be much better off in the hands of Paul Levesque in WWE now than what they're doing with them in AEW. I'll continue to try to keep up with the House of Black in AEW. But I... And it's a disappointment. I'll go off on one tangent and then I'm going to end the, end the podcast. When Malachi Black first came into AEW, I was like, 
Tony Khan knows how to book this guy. Finally, because Vince didn't get him at all. And he, I, I think he's an extremely talented, interesting wrestler. And at first it was good. And then after the Cody defeat, because we got to get that back. I don't know why, but we got to get that back. What they've done with this House of Black and all of that, it's so much lesser than all of the parts. You got Brody King, a big man that can move. You got Julia Hart, who has a, a great look and has carried this role off spectacularly. And then you've got Buddy Matthews and Malachi Black, who can both go in the ring. And what they've produced, not they, what the creative in AEW has produced. Yes, I'm putting the blame squarely on the creative in AEW for this. What the creative in AEW has produced with the House of Black is so much less than the sum of its parts. And that, that's an absolute shame. So with that, I'm going to end the podcast for this week. The next episode will come out December 12th. Uh, Caleb and I will be doing that one together, and we'll be talking about either one or both of the last legitimate contests wrestled by Ed Strangler Lewis. And my hope is we will have a special guest in studio for that episode. And... Uh, You'll hear about how I almost got my cousin killed 30 or 40 years ago at a wrestling match. So stay tuned. Until next time, take care, everybody. Bye-bye.